With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Origins Podcast. This is a podcast that encompasses stories about the origins of just about anything and everything. Information, theories, stories, conjecture, ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, anything. Come along and listen. Visit the website for more information. www.bizarrebizarre.info forward slash origins. Looking for something a little bit more intellectual? Here's the place. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Welcome to Origins Episode 5. This one's entitled, Using Kites to Pull Cargo Ships Across the Seas. And this story comes from www.inhabitat.com. Uh, it's from January 29. It's written by Georges Shepard. If you go to my website, there's a link to this story. Uh, that's www.bizarrebizarre.info forward slash origins. And it will show you a couple of photographs showing a ship, a cargo ship in port with the sail stored and then another one of it using the sail as it's crossing the ocean. Just like a large kite really. Not a bad idea for sailing fuel, saving fuel uh, and reducing running costs and energy and the like. Anyway, the story goes like this. A few months ago we reported on future attempts to use a kite to move a cargo ship across the ocean. But just last week the MS Beluga set sail on its maiden voyage from Bremerhaven to Venezuela where it showed, quite successfully, that wind power might just be the future of nautical transportation. The MS Beluga is a 140 metre long cargo ship. It uses a 160 square metre sky sail, which is set to fly at a height of between 100 and 300 metres above the ocean. While it is not the main mode of propulsion, the kite is able to reduce fuel consumption by about 10 to 35 per cent, depending on wind conditions. The sky sail is the creation of Stefan Rage, who believes these kites could be used on almost 60% of all cargo ships. It is attached to the ship by a single line that is controlled by a computer, and works precisely as you'd expect, like a giant version of a small kite. The maiden voyage just started last week, and already the sail has been deployed. It will cross the Atlantic Ocean using the traditional windjammer route south of the Azores. Its full travelling time is expected to be a total of 15 days. If successful, the company expects to deploy this system on other cargo ships. I saw something similar years ago in a documentary uh, on Jacques Cousteau and his um, ship, the Calypso, but their system was more like a metal mast, almost like a, a, a wings, wing of an aircraft, but vertically. And uh, they used these, they used to angle these into the wind, 
and the wind used to blow them and reduce the uh, fuel consumption of the, um, the boat as it went along. So this is probably sort of a development of a similar idea, um, using a sail to actually assist you to go in the direction you wish, thereby reducing your fuel consumption. Uh, not a bad idea, actually. The music today comes from the Podsafe Music Network and I'd like to thank them very much for offering this service to podcasters. And I'm featuring an artist called Stephen Kellogg and the Sixers. That's S-I-X-E-R-S and we'll have seven of his uh, numbers on today. Um, that one was entitled The Big Easy. And uh, the Stephen Kellogg, of course, spelt the same way as the Cornflakes people. Uh, so if you're interested in his music, uh, Podsafe Music Network. This story comes from the Yahoo News Network by Reagan Doherty, and it's entitled A Vaccine for Drug Addiction Could Offer Hope to Users. In a search for what could be the ultimate cure for drug addiction, scientists have developed a vaccine which prevents the body from getting high. The hope is that it can stop people from falling back into a spiral of addiction if they have a relapse. The most promising results so far have been with cocaine, but researchers hope it could also one day be used to cure addiction to methamphetamine, heroin and even cigarettes. The vaccine slowly decreases the amount of cocaine that reaches the brain, said Thomas Coston, a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, who has been working on the vaccine since 1995. It's a slow process, and patients do not go through any significant withdrawal symptoms. The vaccine works by getting the body's immune system to recognise the drug as foreign and attack it in the bloodstream. It does so by injecting an altered version of the drug into the body which has been attached to a protein that the body will recognise as a threat. The body then says, This is a foreign article. I should start making antibodies to it, Costin said in a telephone interview. The cocaine molecules eventually pass through the kidneys and are excreted through the urine. That stops the drug from reaching the brain and producing a sought-after high. Use of the vaccine would lead to a gradual tapering of dependence, Costin said. Gradually, antibody levels would rise. If you kept using cocaine, you'd get less and less of an effect. Of all the drugs tested, cocaine is the easiest one for which to develop a vaccine because of an enzyme in the bloodstream, cholinesterase, that helps break it down, Costin said. He has also begun to test vaccines, vaccines for methamphetamine and heroin in animal studies and hopes to eventually add nicotine to the list. That's going to be the money maker, 
he said. Injections are designed for the therapeutic, not for preventative use, and are meant for those already suffering from addiction. That, however, does not rule out other possible future uses, Costin said. You could potentially inject pregnant cocaine users with the vaccine to prevent their fetuses from becoming contaminated, he explained. Other uses could include administering the vaccine to high-risk adolescents in order to prevent them from becoming addicted early on, he said, while acknowledging that this would raise serious ethical and legal questions. Testing for the cocaine vaccine has included a series of five injections over a period of three months, Costin said. The vaccine has one more large-scale human study scheduled before it is ready for the Federal Food and Drug Administration approval process. A similar nicotine vaccine is also in the early stages of testing by several groups of European researchers. Costin hopes to have the vaccine on the market in two to three years. I found this story on the uh, eurekaalert.org website and it's quite an interesting one about a possible alternative source of energy. There seem to be a lot of these coming up lately with the problems with oil etc but this one's quite an interesting one. It's entitled E. coli, a future source of energy. Thomas Wood, a professor in the Texas A&M University's Artie McFerrin Department of Chemical Engineering, has tweaked a strain of E. coli so that it produces substantial amounts of hydrogen. For most people, the name E. coli is synonymous with food poisoning and product recalls. But a professor in Texas A&M University's Chemical Engineering Department envisions the bacteria as a future source of energy, helping to power our cars, homes and more. By genetically modifying the bacteria, Thomas Wood, a professor in the R.T. McFerrin Department of Chemical Engineering, has tweaked a strain of E. coli so that it produces substantial amounts of hydrogen. Specifically, Wood's strain produces 140 times more hydrogen than is created in a naturally occurring process, according to an article in Microbial Biotechnology detailing his research. Though Wood acknowledges that there is still much work to be done before his research translates into any kind of commercial application, his initial success could prove to be a significant stepping stone on the path to the hydrogen-based economy that many believe is this country's future. Renewable, clean and efficient, hydrogen is the key ingredient in fuel cell technology, which has the potential to power everything from portable electronics to automobiles and even entire power plants. Today, most of the hydrogen produced globally is created by a process known as cracking water, through which hydrogen is separated from the oxygen. But the process is expensive and requires vast amounts of energy, one of the chief reasons why the technology has yet to catch on. Wood's work with E. coli could change that. While the public may be used to hearing about the very specific strain that can cause food poisoning in humans, most strains are common and harmless, even helping their hosts by preventing other harmful bacteria from taking root in the human intestinal tract. And the use of E. coli in science is nothing new, having been used in the production of human insulin and in the development of vaccines. But as a potential energy source, that's new territory, and it's being pioneered by Wood and his colleagues. 
by selectively deleting six specific genes in E. coli's DNA, Wood has basically transformed the bacterium into a mini hydrogen-producing factory that's powered by sugar. Scientifically speaking, Wood has enhanced the bacteria's naturally occurring glucose conversion process on a massive scale. These bacteria have 5,000 genes that enable them to survive environmental changes, Wood explained. When we knock things out, the bacteria become less competitive. We haven't given them an ability to do something. They don't gain anything here. They lose. The bacteria that we're making are less competitive and less harmful because of what's been removed. With sugar as its main power source, this strain of E. coli can now take advantage of existing and ever-expanding scientific processes aimed at producing sugar from certain crops, such as corn, Wood said. A lot of people are working on converting something that you grow into some kind of sugar, Wood explained. We want to take that sugar and make it into hydrogen. We're going to get sugar from some crop somewhere. We're going to get some form of sugar-like molecule and use the bacteria to convert that into hydrogen. Biological methods such as this, E. coli produce hydrogen through a fermentative process, are likely to reduce energy costs since these processes don't require extensive heating or electricity, Wood said. One of the most difficult things about chemical engineering is how you get the product, Wood explained. In this case it's very easy because the hydrogen is a gas and it just bubbles out of the solution. You just catch the gas as it comes out of the glass. That's it. You have pure hydrogen. There are also other benefits. As might be expected, the cost of building an entirely new pipeline to transport hydrogen is a significant deterrent in the utilisation of hydrogen-based fuel cell technology. In addition, there is also increased risk when transporting hydrogen. The solution, Wood believes, is converting hydrogen on site. The main thing we think is you can transport things like sugar, and if you spill the sugar, there's not a huge catastrophe, Wood said. The idea is to make the hydrogen where you need it. Of course, all of this is down the road, right now. Wood remains busy in his lab, working on refining a process that's already hinted at its incredible potential. The goal, he said, is to continue to get more out of less. Take your house, for example. The size of the reactor that we'd need today, if we implemented this technology, would be less than the size of a 250-gallon fuel tank found in the typical East Coast home. I'm not finished with this yet. But at this point, if we implemented the technology right now, you or a machine would have to shovel in about the weight of a man every day or so so that the reactor could provide enough hydrogen to take care of the average American home for a 24-hour period. We're trying to make bacteria so it doesn't require 80 kilograms, but it will be closer to 8 kilograms. Very interesting. I hope they can get somewhere with that technology. Sounds promising. Gone 
gone for a while And if you're looking for advice, my dear, I have nothing to say I am always at a loss for words when you look at me that way But the bruises keep the breaks at bay On Father's Day Now, this following story from the National Geographic News is written by Keir Tan uh, on July the 29th. Now, this story has particular interest to us in Australia because we're large consumers of sunscreen. And uh, there's a study, this study is suggesting that su uh, swimmers' sunscreen could be killing off the coral. The sunscreen that you dutifully slather on before a swim on the beach may be protecting your body, but a new study finds that the chemicals are also killing coral reefs worldwide. Four commonly found sunscreen ingredients can awaken dormant viruses in the symbiotic algae called zooxanthellae that live inside reef-building coral species. The chemicals cause the viruses to replicate until their algae hosts explode, spilling viruses into the surrounding seawater where they can affect neighbouring coral communities. Zooxanthellae provide coral with food energy through photosynthesis and contribute to the organism's vibrant colour. Without them, the coral bleaches, turns white and dies. The algae that live in the coral tissue and feed these animals explode, or are just released by the tissue, thus leaving naked the skeleton of the coral, said study leader Robert Danavaro of the Polytechnic University of Marsh in Italy. The researchers estimate that four to 6,000 metric tonnes of sunscreen wash off swimmers annually in oceans worldwide, and then up to 10% of coral reefs are threatened by sunscreen-induced bleaching. The original study appeared online in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives. Danovaro and his team studied the effects of sunscreen exposure on coral samples from reefs in the Pacific, Atlantic and Indian Oceans. Even low levels of sunscreen at or below the typical amount used by swimmers could activate the algal viruses and completely bleach coral in just four days, the results showed. Seawater surrounding coral exposed to sunscreen contaminated up to 15 times more viruses than unexposed samples. Several brands of popular sunscreens were tested and all had four ingredients in common, paraben, cinnamate, benzophenone and a camphor derivative. Sorry about the pronunciation. Robert Van Wosick, a coral expert at the Florida Institute of Technology, was not involved in the research, but he does question whether conditions in the study accurately reflected those found in nature. For example, the coral samples were exposed to sunscreen while in plastic bags to avoid and contaminating the reef, but Van Wosick worries this prevented dilution of the chemicals through natural water circulation. Under normal circumstances on a coral reef, Coral would not be subjected to these high concentrations because of rapid dilution, Van Wosick said. 
But according to study author De Navarro, the effect is not dose-dependent, so coral's exposure to a very small dose of sunscreen is just as dangerous as high exposure. It is more like on-off, he said. Once the viral epidemic is started, it is not a problem of toxicity. Rebecca Vega-Thurber, a marine virus and coral researcher at San Diego State University in California, said the new results are further evidence of an alarming trend. Other human-induced factors such as coastal pollution, overfishing and sedimentation all contribute to coral reef habitat degradation and this work continues in that vein, said Vega Thurber, who was also not involved in the research. That I wasn't there And if I acted like a dick It didn't mean I didn't care And I've been chasing dreams in magazines The last ten years And the way you treat your mother's up to you But it can't feel all that good to be so angry I guess I learned that too Just because afraid you won't find love She says that she's never home The following story comes from the uh, age.com.au, which is a website based on the Age paper in Melbourne, Australia. And it's a vitamin E for vim and vigour. And it goes back to January the 23rd. Vitamin E may help elderly people keep their vim and vigour, researchers have said. The researchers measured levels of certain vitamins in the blood of 698 people aged 65 and up in Italy and then used three tests, a short walk, balance and standing up from a seated position to gauge their physical functioning. They found that volunteers with lower levels of vitamin E performed worse on these physical tests than those with higher levels of the vitamin. Levels of the other vitamins, folate, B6, B12 and D, did not seem to affect the test. The researchers reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association. We consistently found that a low concentration of vitamin E was associated with subsequent decline in physical function, researchers led by Benedetta Batali of Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, wrote. Poor nutrition may play a role in leading elderly people to become physically disabled, but there had been little strong evidence backing up this notion, researchers said. Vitamin E is an antioxidant meaning it can protect tissue from damage caused by unstable substances called free radicals that can harm cells, tissues and organs. It is also involved in the formation of red blood cells. Our study, however, was not aimed at identifying possible pathways by which low levels of vitamin E may contribute to decline in physical function, Vitaly said by email. Scientists have been examining the role vitamin E may play in preventing or treating certain health conditions, including cancer and heart disease. Vitamin E can be found in foods including wheat germ, corn, 
nuts and seeds, olives, green leafy vegetables such as spinach and asparagus, sunflower, soybean and cottonseed oils. But some researchers indicated that very high amounts of vitamin E can be harmful, raising one's overall risk of death. The researchers in the current study said future studies should try to determine whether there is an optimal level of vitamin E for reducing physical functional decline and the onset of disability in the elderly. Study participants who came in from two municipalities close to Florence were examined initially from 1998 to 2000 and then tracked for three years. Just one participant was taking a vitamin E supplement, the researchers said. In another story from the Age Life, uh, Age.com Lives and Styles section, um, they have link, made a link between autism and the immune system. And this is a report on the study. It dates back to January 29. In another tantalising link between the immune system and autism, researchers at the University of California, Davis, have found 11 genes, all governing natural killer immune cells, that are more active in autistic children than in other youngsters. While the study is small and very preliminary, it bolsters theories that some sort of infectious agent early in life or even in the womb might play a role in autism, said Dr. Jeffrey Gregg, Director of Molecular Diagnostics for the UC Davis Medical Centre. Gregg is one of 11 researchers who studied how genes are expressed in the blood of children with and without autism. Their work, published in the January edition of Genomics, found similarities in all autistic youngsters as well as intriguing differences between those whose symptoms show up earlier or later. Both findings could eventually lead to a better understanding of how different types of autism develop, as well as potential tools for diagnosing or preventing the neurodevelopmental disorder, Greg says. People with autism have trouble connecting with others in a wide range of ways, such as failing to make eye contact 
or understanding facial expressions or gestures. They may engage in repetitive or destructive behaviour. Sometimes the symptoms become obvious very early, when babies fail to develop normal developmental markers. But in other cases, children develop typically for 18 months or more and then seem to slip backwards. Children with that regressive autism had nearly 500 genes that were actively different than children with early onset autism. Greg and his colleagues found after examining blood samples from 61 children. That would suggest that those two groups are very different and may have totally different underlying pathology, Greg says. Both groups, though, as well as other children with a range of symptoms called autism spectrum disorder, shared the 11 strongly expressed genes that control natural killer immune cells. Some of the genes were also involved in other immune functions. Because researchers set out to make such a broad study of the blood, looking at how every gene was expressed, Greg says it's fairly startling and provocative to see the relationship with natural killer cells emerge. The new research follows earlier suggestions of an auto, uh, sorry, of an autism immune system link, including a 2005 analysis by other researchers at the University of California Davis Mind Institute, looking at proteins in the blood. That work found autistic children had 20% more B cells, an immune cell that produces antibodies, and 40% more natural killer cells which attack tumours, viruses and other invaders. It's still unclear how these differences emerge, but other Mind Institute researchers are looking at immune differences in mother's bloodstreams that might be predictive for having a child with autism, said Dr David Amaral, the Institute's research director. <coughs> Things are moving really, really fast now, Amaral says, with scientists around the country working to understand the relationship of genetic and environmental factors that may underlie autism. It gives me optimism that we're going to find a variety of useful markers for prevention and maybe even treatment as well. There's only so much that you can pretend Write down what it is you're thinking Take each day as it comes You never know what's hanging around the bend and as far from the world as we get I can't swear that the two of us will always be the same Figure out what it is you believe And if you must choose Try not to trade your fortune and for fame And you'll learn, learn Wait your turn, turn, turn And you'll get sick on the way By the things that people say It'll break your heart against the wind But you will just keep breathing in If you're scared to live in front of the world, I got news for you.
The following story is from the io9.com network and it's on architecture and it's entitled St Petersburg Starts Process of Becoming a Dome City. Now if you go to my website www.bazaarbazaar.info forward slash origins you'll see a link to this site and it has two photos or two drawings that are artist impressions of what they think it's going to look like. It's not quite a glass dome city yet, but St Petersburg has taken the first steps towards that goal. The British architecture film Wilkinson, firm sorry, Wilkinson Air, best known for the design of the Gateshead Millennium Bridge in Newcastle, unveiled a bold new plan to revamp the old market of St Petersburg, Russia, by putting it entirely under glass. Over the next few years, they'll be putting a giant sheet of reinforced glass over Apresen Dvor, a shopping district, a matching glass bridge will span the river. And here are some facts about the project. A glazed crystalline glass called Tense Gritty, T-E-N-S-E-G-R-I-T-Y, roof reflects weather conditions but keeps pedestrians dry. A new building on the Fontanka River will replace a decaying 60s publishing house. A lightweight Tense Gritty footbridge will be built over the river. It'll look like a shiny cloud. And if you look at the images, it, it does look like a shiny cloud. It's, it's really quite, quite bizarre. It's worth having a look on the website. From New Scientist Tech, instant bubble wrap makes for soft planetary landings. And Tom Simonette wrote this on the 29th of January. Miniature airbags that deploy explosively to protect microsensors during planetary exploration are being tested by Swiss and German researchers. Space agencies around the world are exploring ways to distribute large numbers of compact sensors, or MOTES, and that's spelt M-O-T-E-S, on the other planets. These distributed devices could reduce larger planetary craft, or not reduce, sorry, replace larger planetary craft for relatively simple tasks, such as atmospheric sensing. But landing them safely remains a key concern. Now, Danik Briand of the University de Neuchâtel, Switzerland, and colleagues have, have developed a solution, miniature airbags that inflate explosively. An array could spring into action, like explosive bubble wrap, before a moat hits the surface. Our new balloon technology could be integrated to protect these sensors during landing, as it is done now for rovers, Briand told a New Scientist magazine. With colleagues from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology and Swiss Aerospace and defence company RUAG, R-U-A-G, Briand built the first explosive airbags by modifying satellite microthrusters, which are made from solid rocket fuel packed into silicon. The team realised that gas produced by microthrusters could rapidly inflate a tiny balloon. It built prototypes with small plugs of solid fuel inside silicon walls one millimetre deep and five millimetres across, topped with a rubbery membrane to act as the skin of the balloon. The fuel sits on a platinum wire and ignites when enough current is supplied. When the fuel burns, it produced gas that inflates the membrane into a bulging balloon a centimetre across in just a few milliseconds. The team measured the amount of force generated by using the membrane to launch a metal ball a metre into the air and found it gave many times the kick of other devices of similar size. Briand believes the balloons could do more than just cushion spacecraft. They could flip sensors over should they get stuck upside down or they could unfurl solar panels on small satellites. 
Although the balloons can be only used once each, they are small enough to be packed tightly into compact spaces, he says. The researchers are now working to model the way the device works to help design future prototypes. It's really nice work, said Mikko Ellensbuk of the University of Twente in Netherlands. For small devices, these can produce very large and useful amounts of energy. Ellensbuk and his colleague Dennis van der Broek have been developing similar micro-balloons. Their reusable devices rapidly heat up droplets of ethanol, or another fuel, to inflate a membrane. The liquid explodes into a bubble of vapour that pushes out the membrane within one or two microseconds, Ellensburg said. After the bubble forms, the vapour rapidly condenses back into liquid again. The technique delivers more than a thousand times the power of other similar-sized micro-devices and could be useful to pump coolant around tiny electronics, he said. A paper on micro-balloons for space applications was presented at the International Conference on Micro-Electro-Mechanical Systems in Tucson in the US earlier this year. A paper on the bubble-drapped devices was presented at the Transducers Conference in Lyon, France, last June. Probably just because she can And if I had a dollar for everything I should have said I'd probably still be busted I would throw it all away again Lightning bugs light up all across the southern sky Some guys get it all and they don't even need to try I watched you roll away but you didn't even say goodbye And now I hate the night, I'm guessing that's the reason why And this, this is my life On the 4th of July It isn't much, but at least it's mine Got in my van, ended up in Boston Thought about my friends and how easily I lost them I'd do it all again, I leave everyone exhausted Some folks get a break, me I never got one I thought of you at night when I would drink too much If you thought about me too, you never tried to get in touch Went back to school and I ran into some guys I knew We started up this band, but we couldn't seem to get it through we got some kicks, eventually we lost that too Did you ever think that maybe if you're not happy it's because of you? This, this is my life On the 4th of July It isn't much If you enjoy listening to the Origins podcast or the Bizarre Bizarre podcast, um, why not visit me at TalkShoe and just look up Origins, O-R-I-G-I-N-Z, or Bizarre Bizarre, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-B-A-Z-A-A-R, and give me a bit of feedback. It would just be interesting to see what people think about my shows. Thanks for that. Following along on our space theme, um, this one is sourced at New Scientist as well. And it's um, written by Henry Gom, and uh, it's called Finding the Door to a Parallel Universe. If there were a portal linking us to a parallel universe or some other region of space, how would we spot it? One suggestion is that it would give itself away by the curious way it bends light. The existence of wormholes linking different regions of space was suggested in 1916 by the Austrian physicist Ludwig Vlam as a possible solution to equations of general relativity, which Einstein had published that year. 
They have since become accepted as a natural consequence of general relativity, which predicts that matter entering one end of a wormhole would instantly emerge somewhere else, so as long as the wormhole is somehow propped open. Though no direct evidence for wormholes has been observed, this could be because they are disguised as black holes. Now, Alexander Shatsky of the Lebedev Physical Institute in Moscow, Russia, is suggesting a possible way to tell the two kinds of objects apart. His idea assumes the existence of a bizarre substance called phantom matter, which has been proposed to explain how wormholes might stay open. Phantom matter has a negative energy and a negative mass, so it creates a repulsive effect that prevents the wormhole from closing. According to Shatsky's calculations, the way phantom matter deflects light would give the wormhole a signature that astronomers could look out for. The gravity of an object with a positive mass, such as an ordinary black hole, focuses light rays passing close to it as if it were a giant concave lens, an effect known as gravitational lensing. Phantom matter's negative mass would have the opposite gravitational lensing effect to normal matter making any light passing through the wormhole from another universe or point in space-time diverge and emerge from it as a bright ring. Meanwhile, any stars behind it would shine through the middle. Shatsky suggests that his idea might offer a way for future space-based observatories, such as Russia's planned Millimetron project to look for wormholes at the centre of large galaxies. Other researchers point out that the idea relies on several untested assumptions. It is an interesting attempt to actually think of what a real signature for a wormhole would be, but it is more hypothetical than observational, said Lawrence Krauss of Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Without any idea of what phantom matter is and its possible interactions with light, it is not clear one can provide a general argument. Critics also point out that even if phantom energy does exist, other objects might create a similar light signature. The basic mechanism would not distinguish wormholes from negative energy stars, said Don Marolf at the University of California, Santa Barbara. What's more, today's telescopes would struggle to see the signature in enough detail, says astronomer Daniel Holes at the University of Chicago, though he doesn't reject Shatsky's idea out of hand. It's an interesting thing to think about. Maybe after a few beers. An elegant sweetheart that just blew my mind I guess the keys to my castle had always been there There for the taking But nothing could prepare me Sweet Sophia Girl, and look at you and I was hooked in there Sweet Sophia Thunder in beds and the earthquake shook With your heart-shaped lips and my breath That you took With a fierce disposition like a beat of a drum You get hurt more than others but you have more fun I can't make it stop so the love keeps on growing And if it killed me today I'd be better off for knowing Sweet Sophie 
was hooked and then Sweet Sophia Burned all the pages and rewrote the book With your heart-shaped breaths and my breath that you took Today's final story comes from thetelegraph.co.uk. It's written by Roger Highfield, who was their science editor on the 30th of January. And he's reporting that blue eyes could be the result of an ancient genetic mutation. Frank Sinatra, Stephen Hawking, Marie Curie and Stephen Fry all owe their blue eyes to a genetic mutation that likely occurred between six and 10,000 years ago, researchers say. Scientists believe they have tracked down the cause of the eye colour of all blue-eyed humans on the planet today. Originally, we all had brown eyes, said Professor Hans Eiberg from the University of Copenhagen, who led the team. Blue eye colour most likely originated from the Near East area or northwest part of the Black Sea region, where the great agriculture migration to the northern part of Europe took place in the Neolithic periods between six and 10,000 years ago. That is my best guess, he said. It could be the northern part of Afghanistan. The mutation affected a gene called OCA2 and literally turned off the ability to produce brown eyes, he said. OCA2 is involved in the production of melanin, the pigment that gives colour to hair, eyes and skin. The mutation in the adjacent gene does not switch off OCA gene entirely, but limits its action reducing the production of melanin in the iris of the eye, diluting brown eyes to blue. If the OCA2 gene had been completely turned off, those who inherited this mutation would be without melanin in the hair, eyes or skin, in fact, an albino. For the study, Professor Eiberg's team examined DNA in the blue-eyed individuals in current countries as diverse as Jordan, India, Denmark and Turkey. His findings are the latest in a decade of genetic research, which began in 1996, when Professor Eiberg first implicated the OCA2 gene as being one of the most responsible for eye colour. They have all inherited the same switch at exactly the same spot in their DNA. From this we can conclude that all blue-eyed individuals are linked to the same ancestor, said Professor Eiberg, who reports the work in the journal Human Genetics. Well, that concludes episode five of Origins. I hope you enjoyed the show. Now, remember, if you need to check out the stories or you want to find more information, go to my website, www.bazaarbazaar.info forward slash origins. And there you'll find a link to episode five and to all the websites I used to report on the information. If you did like the music today, remember it was Stephen Kellogg and the Sixes, and he can be found on the Podsafe Music Network. I'd like to thank you all for listening and uh, hopefully you'll come back for episode six. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.